Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are starting off our New Year's Wharf of Picks with one of mine, in which I am giving you the present of letting us read about straight people romance for once. It's not going to happen often, so I hope you enjoyed it while it lasted. We are discussing... Kowloon Generic Romance Volume 1. This is by mangaka Jun Mayuzuki. In terms of localization into English, this is published by Yin Press with translator Amanda Haley and Abigail Blackman on letters. And it's essentially a dystopian romance, technically. And like while the setting is dystopia, capitalist hellscape yada yada it's not as depressing as that makes it sound i think it's very funny it's one of those characters just sort of go about their everyday lives sort of books but before we really dive in beyond that i suppose i'll pivot to you and ask if you felt seen and if you felt represented and if you enjoyed the book if it weren't for the spaceship thing floating above them the whole time, I would say that this is just set in a busy city in the present day. Oh, yeah. And I would believe it. <laughs> yeah, that floating, like... Thing. Yeah, like, I'm trying to think of what the word for that geometric shape is. The floating pyramid in the sky. It looks like Ramiel from Neon Genesis Evangelion, for listeners who know that. But yeah, the Kowloon and Kowloon Generic Romance is a reference to Kowloon Walled City, which was a very densely populated area in Hong Kong that was basically just sort of a unique district in terms of like jurisdiction disputes governmentally and it's no longer around. It was demolished in 1994. As the translation notes notes, uh, this volume has a nice page of notes of some historical context and other things like that, which is nice at the end of the volume. But yeah, it takes inspiration from the real world Kowloon, but that's it. It's not like a historical romance or meant to be realistic because... As you just said, there's a gigantic floating shape in the sky, which is kind of our main reminder that this is a vaguely futuristic, but doesn't really feel all that far in the future sort of setting. The day-to-day life is very much these characters just going about their lives in the very crowded city. Well, it's such a low-income area as well, so we don't even see the advanced tech because they don't get to see it that's like there's a, a lot of tech note. going into that spaceship but like that's the rich people's spaceship yeah exactly like our main character is named kuji rai um i'll go ahead and say her love interest is named kudo and those two are our main characters and they're very much working class they don't personally seem like the poorest of the poor in kowloon but they're definitely not rich like 
They don't interact with anyone who would seem to be rich at all. They work for this real estate company and most of the other characters that they interact with on a daily basis are just their boss or working class people working at local businesses, at local restaurants. You know, there's a bunch of kudo hanging out with like the old men of the neighborhood and sort of being a handyman to them. And yeah, there's like frequently like news airing in the background talking about two main specific things, really. Generic Terra is the name of that floating geometrical object in the sky, the sort of imitation earth for assumedly rich people to get to go to at some point. At this point in the story, it's under construction, so it's not really a place that people are actually living or doing whatever they're going to do there. If it's going to be like a commercial district or whatever the hell, it's under construction. So we get mostly just like reminders of it in the form of some newscasts about the development or like even more capitalistic like stores selling t-shirts with a little mascot for the project named Gene Terra. And beyond that, we mostly see it as like a background feature in the landscape shots of like the characters looking up beyond the buildings at night. And oh, there's that floating object in the sky along with the stars. It like reading this first volume, the level of emphasis on the heat, especially the whole like subplot where the like the the middle arc where there's the heat wave and all the air conditioning shut down and everyone in the book is sweltering it feels very rich people escaping ecological disaster to me yeah yeah that's fair i love how much of it like emphasizes sort of the nature of the community and the setting and you already pointed out like you know generic terra is sort of the rich people technology thing that the characters don't get to deal with and yeah it's an interesting point too if like the heat wave you know generic terra is so that the upper class won't have to deal with stuff like that but as you said in the middle of the volume there's a heat wave going on which kowloon itself is already a hyper dense super populated area so it's really not a good place for people to be during a heat wave and then we have the main characters trying to sell a real estate property in the middle of the heat wave that doesn't have air conditioning so naturally the proposed uh potential tenants when they come to visit are just kind of like we'll let you know because no one's gonna want to live there the opening pages of this manga i think from the very beginning Everything about how Mayuzuki uses her page time immediately jumps out to me in a stark way in terms of just like, there is no way in hell that Marvel or DC, either of like the big two American companies that we cover a lot, would ever let a comic be published like this, wherein the first like 20, 30 pages of this are solidly just our protagonist getting out of bed in the morning, getting dressed, and smoking a cigarette before work. Like, it's a very... Well, they wouldn't let her smoke a cigarette at all. They wouldn't let her smoke a cigarette at all. That 
yeah, true. It's a very decompressed sequence of her getting up first thing in the morning. And I guess I'm curious what you thought of Mayuzuki's sort of uh, comic timing style and the sort of decompressed approach to it. I was kind of waiting for something to happen. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, we got the opening, we've got the title drop. Okay, that that all works. I mean, I was like, oh, she's okay. Another page of her smoking. Uh, two pages. Okay, she's got undressed and left the apartment after another two pages. Yeah. Like it does mean that the shift when um Kudo. Yeah, Kudo. That's how you pronounce. It? Okay. Kudo arrives and like suddenly there's dialogue and plot and like, you know, a page later we're at a different location. There's conversations happening, like there's a bit of a, a sudden shift once everything gets going. Um, but yeah, like I really liked all the stuff pre the title drop. I thought that was a cool opening. And then I felt it went on a little too long after that. I didn't feel like those pages added anything. I think that's fair, yeah. Maybe it like, does. You could have done that in like one page. Yeah. And gotten all the same information I got out of those like several pages. That's fair. Maybe it does drag like slightly too long, but all in all, I do really like the opening in terms of like, as you said, when Kudo arrives, it's like a sudden burst of energy and conversation. So I sort of like the contrast is like emphasizing her very silent morning and like pre-work routine and everything. And I especially like the way in the pages like right before the title drop and then the title drop they sort of do the slow panning out of her at her windowsill in her apartment or not windowsill like out on her little uh balcony little balcony yeah i really liked that that was very cool yeah listeners essentially like we zoom out from just like her and then we zoom out and we see some of like the railing of the balcony in front of her And we zoom out again and we can see that her apartment is between several other apartments. It's like mid-story on what's at least a several story high building. And then we do that again. And we realize that in these title sequences, there's at least a solid six rows by six columns of apartments all jammed right up against each other just selling how compressed Kowloon is as a city and architecturally as she finishes smoking before finishing getting dressed and then arriving at work, where, as you said, we meet up with Kudo, who is going to be her love interest in this manga. And basically his first appearance is her more or less pushing her out of the way at the time clock so that he can make it in on time and she so barely gets counted as late by just hitting that switch of the minute on the time clock because he, despite being the one who is clearly running more late, just doesn't care. He's an asshole. (laughs) He is an asshole. (laughs) He is absolutely an asshole. And his actions throughout the manga really feel just extremely self-centered the entire time and it's like even when he is thinking about her when it comes to her he seems like an asshole and then when he's with those old guys he seems really nice yeah 
I think those scenes are probably the main indication we get that he's not just a complete and utter douche. Because, like, when he hangs out with the old men of the neighborhood, he, like, volunteers to take care of their apartment problems for free. Like, he's always checking in on them and fixing, like, faulty doors and things that just aren't working right. And he's just sort of, you know, literally helping the community. But when it comes to her, he is skipping in line for the time clock. He just sort of puts his own desires above hers. For example, like after the whole time clock thing, she starts just sort of, I don't mean this pejoratively, like she's in the right to do it, but gives him a hard time about it. It's just like, I wound up late, cutting in line is childish, just keeps going on and on until he agrees to go get her lunch. But even the apology lunch, he manages to be a douche because she talks about like having specific places she wants to try. And instead, he's just like, no, we're going to the usual joint and takes her to the same damn place that he always get lunch at anyway. It's just a bunch of examples of conduct like that in the whole manga. He winds up shouting and calling her a dumbass. Do you not sense the rightness of these jiggly boiled dumplings floating in gleaming golden soup? It's very dramatically an asshole. Very dramatically an asshole about the most mundane bullshit. You know, like defending the honor of the neighborhood noodle joint, you know, he is very much against change in Kowloon. I suppose we can sort of transition into that sort of theme. There is talk throughout about how new shops and change in the city tend to be resisted, like new businesses don't usually last very long they're sort of like brief fads. It's mostly like the old established places that remain economically successful and are able to sustain themselves. And this is more in line with what Kudo wants from the city than with what Kujirai wants, because she's not like explicitly against or opposed to any of the old classic aspects of the city, but she's also willing to check out like new businesses, new restaurants, you know, she thinks things like that are fun. She buys like a t-shirt with the generic Terra mascot character on it, you know, like goes to new ice cream places. It just isn't hyper fixated on hating change. Whereas Kudo always wants to go to the same places. And I'll go ahead and read an exchange from a conversation that the two of them have on top of a building during a smoke break. You know how Kowloon is. For some reason, new businesses always go under in no time. That's because Kowloon ought to be nostalgic. Nostalgic? Yeah. Flickering lights, moldy back alleys, noisy neighbors. Don't all of those things feel inexplicably, irresistibly nostalgic? I think nostalgia is the same as love. The people who live here are the same. They're all in love with Kowloon, with this nostalgic Kowloon. So just a very straightforward declaration from Kudo about how he loves the city the way it is, like cramped alleys, noisy neighbors, like little everyday annoying nuances and all. I especially like his line, I think nostalgia is the same as love. It's just 
sort of an interesting, effective one-liner and giving us a really quick snapshot of his philosophy as a character and of his approach to the setting. Yeah, that's on a full page as well. Like, the full page is just that line and him. Yeah, like, Mayuzuki is definitely putting a large amount of emphasis on it with the splash page of just him saying that. And then it transitioning to this two-page spread, which gives us this, like, from the outside view shot of the Kowloon City with just incredibly, incredibly dense stacked buildings and structures that just look absolutely ready to be devastated by a hurricane or an earthquake, just incredibly unsafe looking levels of densely populated. And as they go on, Kudo says, Kowloon will never change. It shouldn't change because it doesn't need anything new. And Kujirai says, I don't particularly get any sense of nostalgia from Kowloon, although I do get that feeling about you sometimes, nostalgia, which gets Kudo's attention. And he comes up and stares at her like deeply, just boring into her eyes with his eyes. And after a pause, he goes, Kujirai, you have a nose hair sticking out. He's a douche. Yeah, he's a get. I don't get it. He's such a douche. And this I'm like, is like, there's got to be better options in this incredibly densely populated area than your asshole coworker. Yeah, it's like, other than being hot, he has literally nothing going for him. Other than he's just... not even that hot. He's pretty hot, but yeah, he's not the hottest. But yeah, it's like this does also give us though our first little sense of like oh, is there something weird going on in the past, some sort of context for the characters that we don't know and that Kujirai herself doesn't know yet, which that sort of element of mystery will continue to develop throughout. Um, After going home for the night, after that workday, that interaction, Kujirai realizes that her eyesight has improved. She doesn't really need her glasses anymore. She has a line after pondering, thinking about him. She says, as if I'd fall for that gorilla. Spoiler alert, she's going to fall for that gorilla. And we move into chapter two, which starts off with a news broadcast program talking all about um, what we already established earlier. Generic Terra, the new world for mankind, um, just goes on about how the sophisticated technology, the constructions making progress, and it introduces like a lot of the merchandise with the Gene Terra mascots, which basically looks like some sort of like a bun, some sort of like bun or dumpling with a face on it, like big, like a big exaggerated eyes and a smile and all of that. And during the news anchors discussion of the project, one man goes, One could say that generic Terra represents the epitome of mankind's romantic spirit. Romantic spirit is going to be another theme, another sort of buzz phrase, along with the word nostalgia throughout the volume. And we get uh, kudos discussing the news with their boss. I don't think their boss ever gets named in this volume. He's just like 
a short squat little older guy and they're watching it Kujirai is the last to arrive in her generic Terra mascot t-shirt to which Kudo gives her shit you know they talk about her like following fads and after that she goes to follow up about a noise complaint that they've gotten regarding one of the tenant buildings that they manage as realtors and we get this sequence of her like putting up a flyer noticing like a coin on the ground and bending down to pick it up this is one of the early examples of just how incredibly cheesecakey this manga can be because no, there's that's just... that's Sorry. the opening the opening is also cheesecakey the the first proper shot of her being right down her shirt with a shirt that is like also clinging to her nipples so that you can distinctly see the shape of them it's pretty cheesecakey yeah the like full color page translucent white shirt it is a very cheesecakey opening i'll give it that and between that and then like this instance of a shot that's just full on her butt as she bends over and then just all the examples later on I guess I'm curious what you thought of the cheesecake in terms of if it took you out of the story or any other thoughts, especially considering that just knowing that the creator is a woman, I feel like I'm biased to being less disgusted than I might be otherwise. So my instinct for cheesecake is always when you're going to have it, you should do it with like the men and the women and then like it's fine. And it's not really done with kudo at all. Which I think is a shame, because maybe I'd get it more if, you know, he was as cheesecakey as she is. But, like, it's fine. I don't yeah. think it hurts the character. It helps that this is, like, her story and is from her perspective. So we're not really objectifying her too much, because she's also the perspective character. Yeah, like, it helps that it's not really, or at least not usually, cheesecake from the perspective of, like, Kudo just sort of leering at her. You know, like a lot of we the literally shots. have her when he when she bends over and we have that ass shot um, in the skirt. We have a panel of him that on the next page, not having even noticed. Exactly, yeah, which like, I think helps. She's seeing that she's not noticed. Yeah, which just like in turn sort of plays back into the whole like him ignoring her sort of aspect of the dynamic or like sometimes seeming to ignore, but also other times just simply not noticing when she's and back other times in... just negging her. Yeah. Like choosing whatever path of communication or non-communication is going to be most offensive to her. Practically there is a point where like they're talking about the fact that she doesn't wear the glasses anymore and he's looking up close at her face and says, the skin around your eyes is dot, dot, dot. At which point she leaves and is self-conscious about it. She grabs some anti-aging cream. And wouldn't you know, when she starts to try to apply it, he once again manages to appear, gives her shit about her wanting to hide her crow's feet, as he calls them, tells her, don't bother fighting the inevitable 32 year old and the thing is he's totally an asshole to her at all times but it doesn't 
necessarily read like he's trying to make her life hell so much as it kind of reads like he just doesn't care and doesn't even think of it. Like, I don't know to what degree he even realizes that he is being a total douche. I feel like anyone who doesn't realize that being a total douche when they're doing that is incredibly stupid. I think he is very stupid. (laughs) Again, my main thing, whenever these scenes happen, is I'm just like, I do not get this. Find some other guy. There must be other men here who are not old. Find one of them. Yeah, he's... He's not exactly the most eligible bachelor around, or at least I have to assume that he's not. We don't get introduced to like other potential suitors, at least not in this volume, but I don't think we even see any other men like around her age, pretty much like at least not any with any dialogue. Yeah, I can't think of any because like this volume has a relatively small supporting cast Because, like, the only ones we really see repeatedly are the main two and their boss. It's like Kudo will briefly see the old men. And it's like, I guess you could maybe say, like, the waiter at the restaurant at one point is about her age. But he's, like, incredibly minor and barely talks. Like, there's really no alternative, like, romantic prospects introduced at all. It's like all very focused on these two specifically, which while they're talking, um, taking a smoke break outside after he gives her shit about her eye wrinkles, which you commented before we started recording about how neither of these two people is a catch because they would smell filthy of smoke, which is a good point. So much. It's constant. They're always smoking. Would not want to kiss up on either of them. No, thank you. Yeah. And as they're taking a smoke break, there is generic Terra floating in the sky. And Kudo starts going on another one of his rants where he says, we'll be punished for building that thing. She replies, you're against generic Terra, Mr. Kudo. And he says, that ought to go without saying. Building an imitation Earth, it's absurd. That isn't romantic spirit. It's aiming too high. To which she goes, aiming too high in romantic spirits. How are they different, do you think? And he goes, aiming too high is when you have desires beyond your position and abilities. Romantic spirit is this. And he pulls out all of his receipts slash lottery tickets that he obsessively collects because to him, romantic spirit is, again, just very mundane, everyday little actions. In this case, gambling and hoping to hit the jackpot so that he won't have to work his shitty real estate job anymore. We get that some more. Fair. Yeah, that part is the most valid thing that he does. The gambling is probably the most understandable aspect of the character. We get treated to some more just like little glimpses into the character, little like superstitions that he has as he walks around the city and nothing especially notable, but just little touches that I think it's clear at this point don't actually make us feel all that more endearing to him. I'm not really entirely sure to what degree the manga wants us to feel endeared to him, you know, like to what degree the reader is meant to share that attraction, which we simply don't. Yeah, I I definitely don't. I'm just like, go just 
anyone else anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just gonna, just gonna hop on about how terrible Kudo is. I'm just like, you suck. He's a douche. And after that discussion about romantic spirit, um, we get some monologuing from Kujirai to herself where she says, when your eyesight improves, you start noticing things you didn't see before. You're happy when you catch a glimpse of little quirks you didn't know about and you want to touch more. Is wishing for that aiming too high or is it romantic spirit? I'm not sure yet. The implication, of course, being it is kudo she wants to touch more, to which I think we both say that is not aiming too high. That is aiming too low. Please go touch someone else. She's literally like holding his jacket up against her and has its arms draped around her. Yeah, she's she's got it bad for this man who also treats her bad. As the story goes on, we get just like little scenes of her shopping around, um, just more sort of everyday things that are meant to emphasize the difference in their priorities and then their tastes. Like she's in charge of buying snacks for the office that week and buys Jean Terra themed snacks, which Kudo complains about. She talks about like checking out all the new little shops on a specific street, getting ice cream there, talks about how fun it is and how Kudo should check it out. He refuses. And after another long day at work, he tells her, doesn't ask, just says, Hurry and get ready to go. We're going to grab some grub. So he leads her through this really compressed like sequence of alleys, again, emphasizing just how crowded the architecture of Kowloon is. And he leads her to just like more local spots that she's never been to before, never tried. They have a lovely time together. We get just nice panels of yummy looking food like dumplings and noodles and stuff that makes me hungry and it's dinner time as we record and it's making me hungrier and they do all of that at this one sort of noodle restaurant and then he leads her along to one more stop to let's see it's called the goldfish tea house where they are welcomed by a young man I'm guessing about their age, maybe a little younger, more or less the only other male character we mentioned earlier who isn't an old man, immediately recognizes Mr. Kudo, calls him by name, tells them that it's been too long since he saw them, and just makes various remarks that catch um, Kujirai by surprise or that she doesn't think really makes sense because as they're leaving... The waiter says, I'm glad Mr. Kudo brought his girl again. Please come back, okay? And like Kudo is telling her to hurry along before she has the chance to correct the waiter about being his girlfriend. She asks Kudo if that won't make things weird when he brings his actual girlfriend to which she's just sort of silent for a minute before saying that that's not her concern. And over the course of dinner, they also have this exchange where she commented on how much she loves the combination of taste between watermelon and cigarettes. She's absolutely insane. (laughs) I love watermelon, but I frankly can't imagine anything tasting good with cigarettes because cigarettes are terrible. Like, why would you ruin the watermelon like that? 
literally and the thing is like cigarettes are such a strong bad taste that like if I did smoke and was going to pair something with it, I would want to pair a really strong flavor, something really distinct. But watermelon's not that strong of a taste. It's just watery and you're still going to taste the damn smoke. So it does not make sense to me either. But anyway, she talks about how good it is to her. He just sort of looks dumbfounded before saying that someone he used to know had that quirk too. And it's nostalgic when like someone says something like that that reminds you of the other person and all in all it was a nice night that yeah if it wasn't like with him i'd say it was a great day exactly it's like he manages to stop insulting her for a little bit at least of what we see on panel it's like they don't have particularly deep conversation but he's at least not berating her so that's nice it's a very nice change yeah Like, I would like to go on a date like that. But the next day, um, she arrives to work, hears from the boss that Kudo is not going to be there. He's taking the day off. And we then transition to getting our glimpse of Kudo hanging out with all of the old men of the neighborhood, gambling, and they start telling him all about their problems and how he's going They start telling him about all their problems, all the maintenance issues we mentioned earlier. And, you know, he talks about helping them later. And it's just sort of a sweet scene of Kudo being nice, which, again, I think is meant to deepen his character and show that he can be nice to people who aren't her, which, you know, sort of raises the question of, oh, well, why is he such a dick to her? Or rather it would if you were someone who cared. And I don't, you know, I'm simply like, (laughs) does it really matter? You're still a douche. Well, then he immediately goes and watches porn in a theater. So I'm like, oh, so he's nice to men. And then the one woman we ever see him interact with, he's crappy to. He's a misogynist. Yeah, like the porn feeder employee that he gives shit to for like stopping the movie after he left because he was the only one there watching the porn in the middle of the day. Just, he's not as rude to her as he is to Kujirai, but we've never seen him be nice to a woman. Also, porn theater is just weird. I get back in the day when you didn't have the internet, but this is set in the future. It's set in the future, and like, I don't know, it's one of those things where I'm kind of like, It also makes more sense to me in like a gay context too, even than like a straight one, you know, where I think about just like, oh, gay men having a hard time finding each other. So go to the gay bar or go to like the porn feeder versus, I don't know, like obviously people individually have their own difficulties or whatever, but I'm kind of like, do straight people need that? Do they really need that? Apparently not, because he's the only patron there the whole time. Statistically speaking, when I meet a woman, she's probably going to be into guys, just like statistics wise. Yeah. It's much easier. Yeah. But yeah, he spends his day hanging out with the old men and then going to watch some porn before going on like a little monologue to the poor service worker about just like how good his luck is right now and yada yada 
everything's going really well before we transition to the next day at work where Kuji Rai, just thinking he had been sick, is just like, are you feeling better? And he just says, more or less, with sort of a frown, more of a sort of sense of like, oh, is he keeping something from her? What's really his deal? I'm not asking any of these questions particularly deeply because, again, I don't care. But... (laughs) Transitioning into chapter five, we enter the heat stroke period that you mentioned earlier. We get, again, like a newscast juxtaposed over various shots of the city. This is the Kowloon Environmental Management Center. A summer smog alert and high temperature and humidity advisory have just been issued. Please refrain from working outdoors and be careful of indoor heat stroke. And... Like this opening page of the chapter, I think is like good setting of just like, you know, that quick newscast laid over giving us the pertinent information quickly across the backdrop of just like panels of the crowded city again. We see shots of wilting sunflowers that are very nicely drawn. We get a cute little panel of a bunch of cats hanging out in the shade um, it looks like probably like the shade underneath a bridge or something like that. And the opposite of every cat instinct. And we then shift to Kujirai, who is doing the new paint job for one of the apartments under their jurisdiction at their realty company, which this apartment specifically doesn't even have air conditioning. So she's doing work in this unconditioned apartment in the middle of a heat wave. And again, more and more cheesecake where she's dripping all over. We get lots of emphasis on individual sweat drops as she's just in short shorts and um, a white t-shirt that's like mostly rolled up and in a knot. Just, you know, she's wearing as little as possible in the heat. And as she's painting... Some of the paint pours down onto her hand and we get this splash page of her writhing with sweat, droplets all over her body and paint looking, just looking like cum, just looking like cum in her hand as she (laughs) is mouth open panting with her legs spread as far as they possibly could. And the strap of her bra has slipped off. Yeah, and even the bra strap is coming undone. This woman is having heat stroke apparently for my benefit. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you feel do you feel serviced? Does does the fan service serve you adequately? I do think it's funny that we have found our winner for cheesecake for our next award show a full year before we have our award show again. I think it's funny that if that happens, it will be from a comic that I picked and not one that you picked. I'm not into cheesecake. A matter... When it shows up in something I'm reading, it's just because, you know, the artist had a horny moment, which I guess that's what this is. Sort of. It's like... <laughs> I'm just like, what on earth? Why? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, again, because I know that this is a woman drawing this i never really bat an eye like morally speaking but it's just very blatant and it's just like okay 
this is just what kind of series this is. So anyone interested, just know that you're in for some very sweaty boobs and suggestive paint splashes. I think it's better when a girl doesn't pass out. Yeah, yeah, that's generally conducive. Should I make it a goal in the next year to see if I can keep one-upping my cheesecake picks? Just just keep delivering the glory for you? I mean, I'm sure there's more. I just, I don't know if there's anything that we both like that's going to go further than that one. There's Cat in a Hot Girl's Dorm. There is that. Okay, there's that. Um, That's all I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, just as she's about to faint, Kudo arrives just in time to drape his arm around her, save the day. He asks her what she was thinking, working on all this painting and all the heat. And she says, I want to make sure the tenants are comfortable, as a certain person put it, referencing him when he was helping the older men earlier, to which he gives her a really obnoxious smile and asks her if he's rubbing off on her. She just calls him full of it and takes a break and drinks some water because she damn near passed out while he goes to working on the painting in her place. And it's at this point where we get the thought bubble. I'm in love with him. She needs some standards. She needs some standards. There's He's not even doing it in his underwear. I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity for him to take all of his clothes off and be doing this in the, in his underwear and then it's like kind of hot but both naked and sweaty next to each other but he looks completely normal aside from like two sweat drops on his face in one panel yeah he's still wearing his whole normal suit he has that his he tie wears. on yeah and i would like never that's... paint while wearing a tie never yeah And, like, that is the one slight difference is that he's wearing his usual suit and he just, like, loosens, like, the buttons on the collar so that, like, it and his tie are, like, slightly less tight. But that's it. He's just painting in his full suit. And that's it. We get, like, a shot of her looking at him at his back as he's painting. And it's, like, here and throughout, he has, like, a decent butt. And that's my best guess as to what she's in love with, but it's really not even good enough to be enough on its own. There's just simply nothing here to this man. Um, yeah, I just, I fully do not understand her at all. Yeah. I like how we picked, how uh, you picked the straight romance book and we spent the entire time just complaining about the guy being an asshole. Yeah. Which, like, I guess just to be clear, like, I still really enjoy this book and like I think it's really effectively paced. I think the setting is really interesting. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, like it is a really good book. We just don't actually care for the pairing itself. But after their not fully sexy painting escapade and her nearly fainting, we transition into chapter six where... They're talking with this one girl about um, Jean Terra merchandise. Again, the little mascot character for the generic Terra project. They talk about how about how demand for the products is rising. And as such, they're starting to get like sloppy and more ineffectively produced. You know, like some of the faces look a little fucked up on these dolls, things like that. 
So yeah, the uh the merchandise is increasingly low quality. Yeah. Which I mostly mention now just because it'll come up again later. But the girl they're talking to starts examining Kujirai's face. She says, It's not her features or the shape or anything like that. Look, the twinkle in her eyes, the glow of her skin, the subtle shifts in her expression. Kujirai, you are in love, are you not? And we get like this close up panel on her face where it's suddenly become like much more romantic, shoujo y, like all the highlight in the hair and the little like flower petals and the screen tones. And Kudo just sort of stares at her. Kujirai clearly wants to deflect, but Kudo takes care of it by just remarking that he's starving. They go get ice cream together. Kudo complains because it's one of those new shops and what an irritating food and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't like anything that's not nostalgic, yada, yada. They talk about nostalgia as love again. Um, Kujirai asks, do you also get that feeling from things other than the objects and scenery that we're here to begin with? For instance, if you could see traces of love, even in a new encounter... And just, again, they look at each other and they see something from the past, but it's from Kujirai's Pove and we don't really know what's going on. And they then go to once again check in on the source of the noise complaint from earlier. They go back to that apartment and when they knock on the door and it opens up, there's a mountain's wharf of the Terra plushes that pours out the door upon them and essentially all of the banging has been this poor overworked lady working on manufacturing these dolls at a rate that is simply unreasonable and unrealistic to try and meet the demand and yeah it's just sort of another little instance of like exploitation and things are not really all right for the people that have to live in this crowded not particularly prosperous area capitalism it sucks yeah and that's just another aspect of this series that i love like the setting not only in terms of like architecture and the community but also just like a real sense of how that relates to everyone's sort of economic circumstances but anyway at one point shortly after this kujirai arrives at the office, sees that Kudo is taking a nap on some chairs, and she's trying to wake him up, tells him that he shouldn't be sleeping because what if a client came by and saw him? And she wakes him up, he peers over at her, gives her a slight smile, and pulls her down to him into a kiss. And we get a couple pages of them doing tongue action before we get like a free panel sequence of him slowly opening his eyes, realizing what's happening, pushes her off, looks utterly blank, like there is no signal between his earlobes as he walks away and says, my bad, wrong person. I'm going to take off for the day. And just more, what the fuck was that about? Behavior from Kudo as Kujirai is left 
profusely blushing and keeps on thinking about it because for whatever reason, she is really into this dude who has nothing going for him but his appearance. And she finally got the kiss, but in a what the hell was that about sort of context. Yeah, that was just us like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> yeah, we had to get that kiss in by the end of volume one and we got it. And the next day at work, or actually, yeah, yeah. The next day at work, he heads out for a little bit to get some food. And she just sort of noticing how messy his desk is again. There's a running theme of just, you know, him being very slobby, very slovenly. And she noticed that he even leaves like his drawers open. She sees the top half of a photo hanging out from one of the filing cabinets where the half that she can see has him on it smiling. And she like goes to pull the photograph out of the filing cabinet. She narrates, she'll be next to him. I'm sure of it. The one he pulled in with those strong arms for that tender kiss. The woman with the same quirk as me. And she is shocked to see the photo which she then brings back to the goldfish tea house from earlier which she tried to find before but she couldn't and now she's surprised she was able to find it now yeah for some reason she's now been able to find it my speculation just being that's a matter of like her memory problems and that she like managed to find it because she has some sort of memory of the direction even if it's not clear point being she manages to get there the photo was of kudo with a woman who at least looks just like her you know appears to be her she arrives at the goldfish tea house the same waiter from before greets her and he looks at the photo like sees her looking at it and he says that photo that was a fun day wasn't it She's shocked. She says, you know about when this was taken? And he's just like, I should hope so. I'm the one who took it right here at this cafe at your and Mr. Kudo's engagement party. And she's just kind of like, what the fuck? Doesn't understand what's happening. And we get this pair of two page spreads where the first is her at her booth, the waiter by her side. She's just sort of like looking down confused. And then in the follow-up spread, it's this dramatic shot of her still in the booth. The waiter disappeared. The glass on the window of the cafe is shattered. All of like the vases of plants are like tattered. Um, Stone is crumbling. Uh, Painting on the wall is now off kilter, hanging down. Just sort of like metaphoric like crumbling of her sense of what's going on and then on the last page of the volume we get a close-up on the photograph itself with as we said uh kudo with his arms around this woman who appears to be her looks just like her it's like a polaroid and written at the bottom beneath the photo is Reiko and Hajime, congratulations, which this is our first time learning their first names. And 
or like rather at least his first name and the name of this woman who may or may not be her. And the final panel is her wondering, Mr. Kudo, who in the world did you kiss? So we sort of end on this note of, is it an amnesia thing where they used to be a couple and that's why he treats her so weird and that's why she's drawn to him but doesn't know why? Or is it like a matter of him having dated someone just like her physically and that's why he feels weird about her? It's just a very, here's the mystery drop. This is the uh, cliffhanger to end volume one on to make you want volume two. If my girlfriend got really bad amnesia and so we broke up because she didn't remember me anymore, I would um, not get a job in the same place as her. I would find a new job. I would not do that to myself. And even if you, say, had to work in the same job, like you know, works really hard, the economy's bad, you need the job you can get. Would you be a douchebag to her at every opportunity? Well, I certainly wouldn't go to lunch with her every single day because they do that. And I wouldn't share all my smoke breaks with her either because they do that as well. And tell her about her crow's feet and about how she's a fad following a silly woman. I would want as much distance as fucking possible. That just sounds miserable. Yeah. This is entering speculatory. Um, Those of us who have read volume two. Yeah, I have read volume two, but it's been a few months. And from what I remember, I don't think volume two gives like really solid answers yet regarding this. Like, I think it sort of moves in different directions and just sort of deepens the mystery from what i remember um, oh wow i would just corner him and just be like okay what the fuck yeah first thing i would do this what is... the shit is this yeah this is solely a speculative thing not a spoiler thing because again i don't remember volume too well and i don't think it explicitly discusses it but I'm sort of wondering or predicting that at some point, you know, the reveal will be that like, oh, he stayed nearby so that he could keep an eye on her. And just like, I imagine it might do some sort of thing of like, I wanted to be close by and be there for you, except he's a douche. So if that is what it ends up being, he's done a bad job because he's a douche. And he's trying to make her less interested by being an asshole. Yeah, I guess we'll see if there's some sort of, like, pushing her away element to it, too. I guess that is another thing they could do, like, with his character arc, is do this um whole sort of, like, oh, it's just so painful, I can't risk you being interested in me, so I'll just make sure to be as much of a dick as I can, and then that and doesn't work. he just weirdly successfully negs her. Yeah. Um, because she's into it for some reason, but, you know. Yeah. People make dumb choices. Yeah. And here seemingly, particularly when they may or may not, but probably have some sort of amnesia with the person. Um, I guess for you personally, as the first time reader who's not read beyond this, was this an effective cliffhanger, both with regard to- I literally to... texted you, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. And then I was immediately like, oh, is it like 50 first dates, but it's from Drew Barrymore's perspective? 
Yeah, that that sure is a premise. And like, you know, good. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie since it came out, but wasn't that an Adam Sandler movie? Yes, yes, it was. I suspect it was that very tells much me... an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, I suspect that tells me that it's not very good. I would not recommend going back and watching it. Yeah, have you seen it as an adult? Yep, it has not aged well. Why did you do that to yourself? It's a good question. I don't know. Sometimes I just do these things. But <laughs> yeah, um, I think I take it that overall you liked this volume and you would be interested to see how things develop in volume two. Oh yeah, the art's stunning. The environment, especially the city, just looks so detailed and just like really lived in. It feels like a very real place. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. So I'd read more of it just for that. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that with the way I was sort of just sort of going through the plot. I didn't really... There's so much plot. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of plot and I didn't really stop and discuss specific moments of the art as much as I should have probably. But yeah, I think lived in is a great way to put it. There's just constantly a lot of like objects and detail and the line art like in the opening scene when we see her chopping up watermelon in her apartment, we get like all of the posters and like the framed pictures hanging up on the wall. There's the TV, there's a table with a chair and with her cigarettes, her lighter, her ashtray, you know, like there's multiple things of cabinets storing like various pots and things like that. There's, you know, and like the, Outside in the city scenes, we'll see like crowds bustling about. There's always like the ledgeways and the fences to balconies and between places. There's just like calendars and all sorts of like office stuff going on at the workplace. There's the banners at the restaurants. Like there's just always a million things going on in the background and it does a good job of just like selling the city and like the really lived in like bustling vibe of it all and to be clear like it never looks too busy in a bad way like it's never so much or presented in a way that it's like hard to follow or like you know like as a reader unsettling like I think it's really well done yeah, but it's just always, like, every page or two, one, like, really detailed panel that illustrates the environment. And then, like, a lot of the other panels will just have, like, some shading in the background and stuff. Like, it, there's a balance of the th those two things. Yeah, yeah, it does a really good job balancing all of that. And, yeah, it's super pretty. And I love the setting. I love, like, I read a lot of romance comics in general. But I tend to steer towards things that are like romance mixed with another genre as opposed to just like a totally contemporary setting. You know, like I like paranormal romance or in this case, like it feels very much like a hustle and bustle everyday romance. But like there's just enough little twists of dystopia and like sci-fi technology that it sort of adds a unique fun little flair to it that i like a lot not to mention that what the fuck ending 
And that what the fuck ending. Yeah. Successfully builds interest in volume two. I have loved this series since I started it. This has been one of the comics that I've been thinking about picking ever since like before we went on our little hiatus back in like November. I had been reading it around then and really wanted to cover it. So this is a comic I like enough that I've been like holding on to and still wanted to cover like four months later. And I'm happy that we got around to it now. And yeah, I aim to pick some more romance this year. So I think I succeeded. But do you have any last comments on this? Or shall we go ahead and move into next week? Let's go ahead and move into next week. What are you going to be making me read? I already know, but tell the people. I have picked a manga. It's very strange for you. It's very out of character, one might say. Well, who plugs Until have, they find like... out what manga it is. <laughs> I haven't really read much for a couple of reasons. One, I can't start that collection as well. My Western comics collection is bad enough. Plus my Doctor Who stuff. And yeah. two, Hoopla doesn't really have much manga on it, which is nonsense and they should. But you know. Okay. Hoopla is terrible for manga. It's amazing for Western comics. I literally have had a hard time finding something that I thought of that what didn't turn out to be on there. But then turn around for manga and I was like, oh, nothing that I can think of. Wow. Yeah, literally nothing. But um, no, I picked Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 2. <laughs> Hell yeah. It dropped. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it was inevitable. It's... We stated as much when we covered Volume 1 and now the time has come. Like Thanos, it was inevitable. Yep. Should be fun. So anyone interested, there's homework. Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 2. Everyone should buy it. I want eight volumes at least. Yeah, everyone should support it. Help them keep making it. But for now, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye. See you next week. Bye.